Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. For the summer, we'll only have two services, one at 9.30 and one at 11.30 a.m. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. All right, everybody. Good to see you this morning. How are you? So glad that you're here. Beginning of summer, I know we have a lot of graduations this weekend. Congrats to all the graduates and their families. It's a very exciting time. We also always look forward to the summer. Today we have our beach baptism celebration. We're going to talk about that a little later in the service. So it's just a great day to be together. So glad that you're here. You know, as a church, we've been taking this summer to to really talk about who we want to be as a church, as a congregation kind of the building blocks of our DNA, the culture that we're hoping to set and grow into and to become as a local church, as a group of believers, as a spiritual family. And so we've had a lot of fun just kind of unpacking what that looks like. What are our mission, our vision, core values, things of that nature. And we, and we talk about this from time to time, and we also shape it from time to time as we sense what God is doing in our hearts and in our community. And so we've been talking about that for the past three or four weeks. And so last week, Trevor was talking, and he was talking about what it means to be growing into a disciple is really to simply to become more like Jesus. And Trevor talked about, you know, you can make it complicated or you can keep it simple. That a person who's becoming a disciple is becoming like Jesus. So if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to check it out online or on the podcast because that's one of those essential building blocks of the DNA of who we're going to be as a church. This morning we're talking about another one of these core values and I'm excited to talk about it because I don't think I've ever taught on this topic before and I had a lot of fun reading and researching and thinking and praying about what we might talk about because one of our core values is we want to have a warrior's soul, a warrior's soul. And being a warrior isn't really something that you hear as much in our generation and in our society, as you might have heard in previous generations. I mean, the most famous warriors in the world would have to be Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, right? <laughs> they are. In the first service, we had some Ohio people here. They started booing as soon as I mentioned Curry and Durant, because, of course, two out of the last three years, you know, Curry and Durant were able to vanquish the foe and, you know, bite off the evil overlords and were able to be the, you know, the, the champions. And so... These are the most famous warriors in the world, but we don't have that type of, of warrior like we used to have. We, of course, still have soldiers, brave women and men who fight for our country. I think also we have such great respect for first responders because they're kind of like a warrior. They rush into battle whenever they're needed. But that sense of warriorship is kind of gone. And so it's something that we want to recapture a little bit. Now, the Bible is full of warriors, some famous, some not as famous. You might think of, for example, Joshua. He's a pretty famous warrior in the Bible. He led the nation of Israel into the promised land. We're going to talk about that a little bit more fully today. You know, Joshua was a great warrior, starting with the Battle of Jericho and Ai and so on and so forth. He was a great warrior. Uh, one of my favorite warriors is a man named Ehud, the left-handed judge. I've talked about him before. Ehud actually went to King Eglon, who was over, you know, kind of 
occupying their nation. He went there under the guise of saying he was going to pay tribute and instead stabbed the man in his stomach so deep and so far that this man's belly closed around the sword and he died. Totally awesome. <laughs> right? My kind of warrior. There's another warrior in the Bible. Her name was Jael. There was a battle nearby and there was an enemy fleeing that battle and he came to Jael's tent and he went into her tent and just asked for some hospitality, for some food and some water. And she said, sure, I'll take care of you. And then she drove a tent peg through his head. Awesome. I mean, this is my kind of warrior. Like these are the warriors that we like, right? Elijah, he was an Old Testament prophet. And a lot of the Old Testament prophets were very, very weird dudes. They would live out on their own because they would speak truth to power and they would speak truth to the people, which meant nobody liked them because all they did was criticize everyone. So Elijah twice in his life pulled a pretty killer warrior move. Twice he called down fire from heaven. That is sweet. I would love to be able to call down fire from heaven. Whether it's an umpire on a baseball diamond, whether it is that guy in front of me who still doesn't know how to merge, fire from heaven would be sweet. I would be all in. But probably, you know, the big three in terms of warriors, you got to start with David. You know, David's always looking pretty trim, looking pretty good. You know, he was a great warrior. I mean, when he was a kid, he would kill a lion. He would kill a bear. He killed Goliath, one of the giant people. We're actually going to talk about that today, too. He also, on many opportunities, was had the... He could have killed Saul, the king. He also led a band of warriors who were just some of the baddest dudes ever. They did crazy stuff. Another warrior would be Moses. You might not think of Moses as a warrior, but Moses was a guy who led, you know, led Israel out of Egypt. And he led them through a lot of different skirmishes and battles along the way in the desert. And if you're not convinced that Moses was a warrior, look at the guns. Okay? total warrior. There's no question about that. Nobody would have messed with Moses. Also, sweetest beard ever, we have to admit, right? That is, that's, that's an epic beard. Another great warrior in the Bible, of course, we think of Samson. Samson, he would, you know, he, he killed a lion with his bare hands. He also worked out just a little bit, as you can see. Dude is yoked. You know, he once grabbed a jawbone and killed a hundred men. One time he caught a fox, several foxes, lit grass on fire, tied it to their tail, and let them run all over the fields of his enemies so that everything would just burn to the ground. He unfortunately was also a womanizer and didn't follow God in all of his life, which is why we always tell the story in Sunday school. I don't know why we do that. <laughs> we always tell the story of Samson in Sunday school right after we tell them about the ark, which is also weird if you think about it, because in the ark, millions of people died. We're like, oh, look, let's put it on the wall in felt. But it's just one of those things. These are great great warriors in the Bible. And so we can learn so much from them because our, our desire is to have a warrior's soul. We define it like this. We approach all that we do with discipline, grit, and a spirit of excellence. As Christians, we've been entrusted with this great task to spread the gospel far and wide. And here at Beacon, we are not going to sit and wait it out. We take ownership of our small part in God's story and mobilize the gifts he has so generously given us to glorify him and to lead and serve others. We speak truth even when it's hard, prayerfully consider and act courageously. Continually seeking his direction, we go until no. We are restorers with a warrior's spirit. That's the warrior soul that we seek to identify. 
And so we're going to focus more specifically on one of my personal favorite warriors in the Bible. His name is Caleb. So grab a Bible and turn to Numbers 13. You definitely need your own copy of the scripture today, whether it's a print Bible or you can use your app. I want you to have it in front of you because we're going to read long sections of the story of Caleb. It's not going to be on the screen. And I want you to be able to really see what was happening. So Caleb lived in the nation of Israel in the time where they had just left Egypt. God had brought them miraculously out of Egypt. They went through the waters of the Red Sea, both literally and also symbolically, you know, going into the water and coming out a new redeemed set apart nation ready to serve God and be his unique people. And they wandered in the desert and God led them miraculously. He led them through food. He gave them water. He gave them his law. And after about a year and a half, they arrived at a town called Kadesh Barnea. I know Kadesh Barnea is a funny name for a town, but we have Ronkonkoma, so we shouldn't judge, all right? So they're at Kadesh Barnea, which is on the edge of Canaan, the edge of the promised land. And they sent in spies, spies, of course, warriors, right? Twelve spies were sent in, and they came back with a report of what they saw. So this is our first excerpt we're going to read in Numbers 13. This is the report of the spies. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are very powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we certainly can do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. Stop there. So the spies come back. Two of the spies, if you read more of the text, it wasn't just Caleb. It was also Joshua as well. Those two spies said, we can totally do this. And everyone else said, we totally cannot do this. So they had just spent a year and a half traveling from Egypt to this land. God had been saying, this is your land. Ten of the spies went in. They came back and they said, the people are huge. Okay, the descendants of Anak. We could talk about this all day. But to make a long story short, these were, it seemed to be a race of ancient people that were very big, very, very tall. Okay, it sort of felt like, you know, the T-ball team against the football team. Like this was big, big dudes. Goliath, David and Goliath, later descended from this same race of people. So these are men who are like eight, nine feet tall. Huge. Like, you know, kind of like being at an NBA game, right? Huge men. So they were there and they're saying, we cannot take these men. They're just too big for us. So God was not happy. So he said, you know what? You say you can't take the land? I guess you're right. You won't take the land. And they wandered for another 38 plus years in the desert. Why did they wander? Because God said, none of this generation is going to go into the promised land because of what happened here with the spies. None of you will go in except Caleb and Joshua. 
the two spies who said, we can do this. So Deuteronomy 1 says it this way. No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. So that's exactly what happened. That whole generation of people died. Another generation was raised up, including the leader. Moses was the last to die of the previous generation. Now Joshua was the leader, and it started over. They crossed through the water, this time the Jordan River, the same way God miraculously brought them through the water, signifying the end of the previous life, the beginning of the next life. They went in, and they spent seven years in battle. But after seven years, they had displaced most of the people who lived there previously, and they took it as their own land. Now go over to Joshua 14. It's like 80 pages over. In Joshua 14, they're starting to give out the land. And if you read a lot of this section, it's assignments. You will be, live in this country. You will live in this country. You three tribes that were, already had your land across the water, you can go home now because we're done with the fight. And then Caleb steps up to the line, and he says this. Verse 6. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kezanite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now listen to this. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kezanite, ever since. Because he followed the Lord God, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Here's a note. Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. So two things happen there. First of all, Caleb comes back. He says, listen, when I was a young man, when I was 40, by the way, I'm thrilled that when he was 40, he was a young man. That is fantastic. It's <laughs> great news. I'm really, really good about that. He says, listen, when I was 40, God made me this promise. It's been 45 years. Remember, 38 years of wandering, 7 years of fighting. It's been 45 years. I'm ready for the land that God promised me. And here's the land I want. I want the hill country. Because, as you know, the Anakites, those are the big people, they're still there. I would like to push them out. Verse 15 has this note that says, you know, Hebron used to be called Kiriath Arba, after Arba, named after their greatest man. So he says, yeah, you know, their city that they named after the biggest, baddest dude they've ever had, yeah, I'm going to go kick them out of that city, and that's going to be my town. Caleb is awesome. I mean, he just has this spirit in him that is unlike anyone else. 
And for us, we want to learn to have that warrior's spirit in us. And I would think of it this way. A true warrior is equal parts barbarian and craftsman. All right, now hear me out on this. The barbarian word I'm taking from one of my favorite authors. His name is Erwin McManus. And this book is called The Barbarian Way, Unleashing the Untamed Faith Within. He's incredible. You can also read Erwin McManus in 2002. He wrote a book called Seizing Your Divine Moment. I love that book. I think you should read it. Just be careful. If you read it, you might grab a partner and go plant a church because I've seen it happen. Because this book is really, really good. In fact, when we say go until no, that's borrowed directly from Erwin. And he's just talking about, this isn't what the sermon's about. It's just, this is just a freebie. He's talking about how so many people, they say, um, you know, I'm just, I'm just waiting for God to show me what he wants me to do. So I'm going to sit here and just do nothing. And Erwin says, why don't you go until he says, no, 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 not that. Great concept. We'll talk about that another day. But, you know, a barbarian... Think of it this way. A barbarian is simply one who is not civilized. Because so often in our Christian faith, we can get a little bit confused. And we can think that the goal of becoming a Christian is that you'll become more civilized. You'll become a good person. What is a good person? A, a good person is just someone who has, doesn't do bad things. In fact, people get so confused about this civilization of the faith that they think being a good person is all it's about. So much so that if they're convinced that they're a good person now, they don't even see a need to come to faith. They say, I'm already a good person. I'm not perfect, but I'm certainly better than the guy who lives next to me. You should meet that clown. So, I'm already a good person. I'm already civilized. No. This is one of the biggest misunderstandings about the faith. It's not about becoming more and more civilized. I love Caleb's name. A literal translation of the Hebrew of Caleb's name is raging with canine madness. <laughs> that is what his name means, raging with canine madness. So one of the questions becomes, what kind of a canine are you going to be? You know, my dog sleeps under the table all day long and does nothing. She's a canine. Are you going to be little Miss Sydney who lives in my house? Are you going to be a wolf? Are you going to go out? Are you going to be a warrior? Are you going to vigorously pursue the things of God, the things of faith? Are you going to be on the front line? Are you going to be a barbarian who says, I am here to fight and fight to the death? If we're going to be a church that has a warrior soul, that means we're a band of barbarians. Think about what that looks like. If you have a civilized, perfect, clean little church, if it's institutionalized, what does that look like? Well, an institutionalized, sanitized church, they're going to, they're going to talk to you about, you know, we need volunteers for the bake sale. We need volunteers for the pumpkin sale, whatever. I heard people do pumpkin sales. I don't know anything about that. You know, they'll say, I need you to hold a baby for an hour once every six weeks. We need volunteers. A band of barbarians says, we're going to find people's gifts, passions, talents, abilities. We're going to shape it, and they're going to go. They're going to do their thing. They're going to grab a few other people who do that same thing, and that band of barbarians, they're going to go out, and they're going to do that thing, because that's our mission. If you have a sanitized, institutionalized church, you're going to have committees that make a lot of decisions, Right? 
Or if you have a band of barbarians, you're going to have teams of people who are passionate about their mission and they're going to go out and they're going to do it together. If you're sanitized, institutionalized, the leaders spend most of their times working with complaints. People complain. They use the prayer card to complain about the color of the carpet or the, the lights are too bright, the shades are too dim, whatever. That's what the leaders spend their time on. But if you have a band of barbarians, the leaders will spend their time training and equipping and showing other barbarians how to be in the pursuit of the mission. Or if everything is clean and sanitized, and your number one goal is to keep things organized, to have well-defined lines, to have important things, you know, sort of codified and structured. If you have a band of barbarians, it's going to be noisy, it's going to be loud, it's going to be smelly, and it's going to be super fun, by the way. Because you're coming together on mission to do this great thing. See, one of the worst things that anyone has ever told you, and I hope you never believe this lie, they will tell you, you know what? Oh, the safest place you can be is in the center of God's will. No way. Tell that to the disciples. They were all killed for their faith. Tell that to the martyrs who have been killed for 2,000 years. Sometimes the barbarians live through the lion's den. Sometimes they don't. We're not called to this simple, small, easy, sanitized, clean faith. Don't be a good person. It's pointless. It really is. <laughs> be a barbarian who's in the mission, who's doing this. And you could clearly see this in the life of Caleb. I mean, throughout his life, whether he was 40 or whether he was 85, he said, you know what? If God is with us in this thing, it's going to happen. And if you read Joshua 15... No surprise to you. After Joshua said, yeah, you can have that land, Caleb went up in the next chapter and just vanquished all the giant people. It's like, you're on, and they're dead. That's what he did. But you can't only be a barbarian. You need to also become a craftsman. Because barbarians, they might have passion, they might have drive, but if that's all you have, then you're sort of a dart without feathers. You know, you're a pitcher that can throw 100 miles per hour, but you can't throw a strike. You have to also become a craftsman. You need to, to practice. You need to become highly skilled in the craft. Become like an artisan. Because any good warrior would tell you, you have to spend a lot more time practicing, training, than actually fighting. If a warrior doesn't prepare, he's just a casualty. You have to have both, the passion to be a barbarian and the craftsmanship to come together and learn how to properly serve. See, a craftsman spends years honing their skills. You know, they, they're, they started probably as an apprentice where another craftsman poured into them. Then they spent a lifetime pursuing their craft. And then a true craftsman, once they become accomplished, will begin to teach others right away. Because any, any craftsman knows that the knowledge should never die with them, and they always want it to be passed on. If you read um, you know, the bios of famous musicians, especially in the classical world, it's very common for them to tell you what school of training they come from. So you might go see a classical pianist in the city, and it'll say in their bio, you know, um, Mr. Memoir, whoever it is, he is a sixth-generation Beethoven student, and they all know. Beethoven taught this guy, this guy taught this guy, this guy taught this woman, this woman taught this woman, this woman taught this man, this man taught me or whoever. So sixth generation Beethoven student, craftsmanship. 
to say it should always be passed on. It should always move forward. There's a famous book by Malcolm Gladwell called Outliers. He throws out a number. He says, if you want to master a craft, you need to spend 10,000 hours in preparation. That's what it takes to master a craft or to be kind of on an expert level. So just using that metaphor as an example, if you spent one hour each day with God and you spent an hour in Christian community in a service like this, eight hours a week, you'd be looking at about 24 years until you would, your faith would sort of come together. Now that's just, it's just a metaphor. I don't know that it's literal, but it's very interesting because if you think about it, Jesus started his ministry when he was 30 and I don't know how much Bibles that he did before he was, you know, six years old. But anyway, 24 years. It's that sort of approach that says, I will prepare day in and day out, day in and day out. Because part of what happens to that is, you know, any craftsman, any artist will tell you, it's the preparation that really defines the results. If you, if you work with athletes or musicians or actors, one of the misnomers you have to break through is a lot of people view themselves as a gamer. They say, you know what? I'm a big game pitcher or I'm a big game performer. When I'm on stage, that's when it all comes together. That's when it's all going to happen. But when you study with masters, they will tell you that that is garbage. One of my professors used to beat it in our head. He said, nothing will ever happen on a stage that hasn't already happened in a practice room over and over and over and over. Because the preparation is what defines the result. And the craftsman respects that preparation. And she or he will, will pour into their craft everything they have. So that's why a warrior needs that barbarian spirit and that craftsman's ethic to say, I will pursue this with excellence. Now, there's a difference between excellence and perfection, by the way. And it's really where your eyes are fixed. If your goal is perfection, your eyes are fixed on the result. So first of all, it becomes an idol, because whatever this thing is needs to be perfect. And you are fixated on that one thing. And if it becomes perfect, you will forever be proud of it. If it doesn't become perfect, then you'll forever be ashamed of it. You won't let anyone see it. But excellence is to be committed to the process, to say, I'm going to do this the right way. I'm going to approach it the right way. I'm going to achieve the result through working the right methods. And it's excellence that's a huge part of this warrior soul that we talk about and we dream about as a church because we want to approach everything we do with a sense of excellence because of the honor of who we're doing it for. And in the person of Caleb, there was a word that's dropped into the text over and over and over that talks about this craftsman's ethic. And that word is wholeheartedly. It's mentioned six different times in three different books about Caleb. We read some of them. For example, in Numbers 14, it says, Because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went into and his descendants will inherit it. See, he was all in. That, that Hebrew word there, it's actually a couple of words put together, and it literally means close the gap. Caleb was saying, I will close the gap between me and God. That's a craftsman's ethic. It says, I'm going to pursue you and get over this break that defines us. And all of this is pointing towards the person of Christ, the ultimate perfect and pure example. Because you know, Jesus had some barbarian in him. If you don't know that, reread the Gospels. First of all, he couldn't stand 
the institutionalized religious people, which kind of doesn't make sense because they came out of the school of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is filled with law. That was God's law. That was God's perfect law. Then when Jesus came, the people who were enforcing the law, he was frustrated with them. So you would think that Jesus would go to the religious leaders and say, listen, you're close, but we just need to shape this thing a little bit. But he didn't. He went to the fishermen, he went to the tax collectors, he went to the political activists, the zealots, the barbarians, and he said, let's do this thing, and they did that thing. Jesus had a lot of barbarian in him to say, we're going to do this to the death. And he had a lot of craftsmen in him too because his level of commitment, you know, his knowledge of the scriptures, his willingness to give himself to others, was unending. I mean, he was fully committed. And so for all of us, that's our dream as a church, that it would be our culture, that we would have that warrior spirit, that warrior soul to be all in, to be passionate, to be vigorously engaged, and to be pursuing the mission that he lays on our hearts with every piece of, of excellence that he can teach us to bring. And in that, bringing others along with us as we're all learning it together.